Back in 2008, the American economy sank into a financial crisis. Some of you remember that. Uh, Barack Obama, who was the president at the time, his chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, said this as that financial crisis was unfolding. He said, never let a crisis go to waste. He went on, he said, the crisis is an opportunity to do things that you think you could not have done before. Obviously, when he talks about doing things during the crisis, what he ultimately means is enlarging the state's power in one way or another. And we have seen this happen again and again, even in our own very recent history. A terrorist attack, an economic downturn, a virus. They can all be excuses to enlarge the state. But this isn't really a new thing. Using a crisis or even manufacturing a crisis to expand political power has been a tactic of statists for a long, long time. And that is because statists see the state as the solution to our problems. If the state just had more money and if the state just had more power, it could fix all that is wrong with the world, all that is wrong with our society. Of course, what gets overlooked so often is that many of the problems our politicians are trying to solve were actually caused by their last round of solutions. You know, put that in square quotes, solutions. Every election season, uh, I think, reveals just how deep statism runs in America. Think about this. Politicians running for office will get asked about all different kinds of things. They'll get asked questions about all kinds of different issues. What are you going to do about illiteracy rates? What are you going to do about teenage pregnancy? What are you going to do about widespread mental illness? And on and on it goes. Have you ever heard a political candidate get one of these questions and respond by saying, you know, there's really not a political solution to that problem. And so if I get elected, I am not going to do anything about it. You're going to have to find some other way to fix it. You ever heard a politician say anything like that at all? No, of course not. The assumption that so many people make is that the state should involve itself in anything and everything. We assume so often that a bigger, stronger government is the answer. I will tell you, the reality is there is no political solution to most of the problems we face as a society, as a culture, as a nation. Politics is no savior. In fact, politics needs saving. And to seek salvation in politics is folly. But again, for the statist, the state is always the solution. But if you make the state the solution, that is idolatry. 1 Samuel 8 makes that clear. It is idolatry. This is how one theologian puts it. He says, Western liberty, the tradition of Western liberty, began when the claim of the state to be man's savior was denied. Wherever Christ ceases to be man's savior, their liberty perishes and the state again asserts its messianic claims. Man is in trouble. And history is the record of his attempt to find salvation. Man needs a savior, and the question is simply one of choice. Christ or the state, no man can choose the one without denying the other. We need a savior. Will it be Christ or Caesar? Which will it be? That's the question. Now, I will say it is certainly true that wise political rulers can do some good in the world. No doubt about that. 
And I would much rather be ruled by a wise and godly man than a foolish and evil one. Politics does matter. And certainly, in our nation, we have uh, the great opportunity to shape politics in all kinds of ways. We've got the civic duty to be politically knowledgeable and engaged. No question about that. But politics is never of ultimate importance. It can only be of limited importance. Think about it this way. No matter who wins the next round of elections, Jesus is still king of the nations. The church's mission is still defined by the Great Commission. And your daily calling to love your family and to love your neighbor and to do your work with excellence does not change. That is to say, whoever wins this coming November in the elections that will be taking place, the most fundamental things about your life will not change. The church can be faithful to her calling under any regime, under any set of political circumstances, under any kind of civil ruler. Sure, I would grant it is much, much more difficult to be a Christian, uh, say, under a communist government or in a Muslim nation than if you're living in a Christian republic. But it can certainly be done, and it is being done in different parts of the world right now. The church does not depend upon the state to do its work, to carry forward its mission. That's something we've got to keep in mind. And of course, all of this brings us back to 1 Samuel 8. I wanted to spend another week in this chapter because there's so much here that is important. 1 Samuel 8 certainly contains a whole political philosophy. You could say it includes a critique of statism. What happens here? The elders of Israel demand a king. Really on behalf of the people, the elders of Israel demand a king. A king who, as it turns out, will be a tyrant. A king who will radically expand state power in Israel and who will control more and more of the lives of the people. So the king really becomes a kind of judgment on them. In fact, you could say the king really enslaves them. Now, you might wonder, and I think this is a legitimate question, you might wonder, what could make tyranny so attractive. Samuel tells them what's going to happen and they say well give us a king anyway. We still want a king like the other nations even though you've told us what will happen. Why would the people so quickly give up their freedom? Well the reality is people can easily be persuaded to give up their freedoms to a tyrant if they think he will give them security. People who are anxious and fearful are easily steered. People who are anxious and fearful are easily manipulated, and that's what's happening here. See, statists will always do what the elders of Israel do here. Statists will leverage the fears and anxieties of the people against them. Oh, you've got this fear, you've got this anxiety. Well, here we can solve it. Just give up this liberty, give us your sons and daughters, give us this much money, we'll solve it. These elders don't let a crisis go to waste. In fact, you could say they really manufacture a crisis, or at least you could say they really exaggerate the nature of the crisis in Israel. You see this in verse 5. They demand a king, and it's based on a pretense. They really make two arguments. One is Samuel is old, and the other is his sons are taking bribes. Now, both of those are legitimate problems, but the reality is Samuel getting old and then eventually dying You know what? God has been raising up judges in Israel for 300 plus years at this point. Samuel's old age really isn't a problem, certainly not one that needs a monarchy like this in order to solve it. Lots of great judges have gotten old, and what happened? God raised up new judges for his people. 
Further, there's no reason to think that Samuel's sons will be judges over the whole nation because the office of judge has never been hereditary. It would be easy enough to remove Samuel's corrupt sons from office. There really isn't a big emergency in Israel at this time. The elders just manufacture one because they want this increase in state power. In fact, it's interesting. Even if you jump ahead in the story to chapter 12, you find that Israel made this request for a king in part because they feared Nahash, king of the Ammonites. Now, of course, we'll look at this more when we get there in the story. But they had this fear that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, would invade. But the reality is, again, God has already defeated enemies much greater than the Ammonites during the era of the judges, and he's done it without a human king. They don't need a judge. They don't need a king to judge them. They don't need a king to rule them. They don't need a king to fight for them because God has been doing all of those things for them during the era of the judges. God has been doing all of those things for Israel for a really long time. But see, this idolizing of safety and security what we call safetyism. Safetyism always makes a people vulnerable to tyranny. You see it again and again in history. This, you see it in American history, you see it throughout history, it happens again and again. Safetyism makes people vulnerable to tyranny, and tyranny is what Israel will get. Their king will become a tyrant, a warlord, a king who takes rather than gives. They don't get a king who fights their battles for them as they wanted. They're going to get a king who's going to make them fight his battles for him. I mean, you even see that a little bit later on when it comes time to fight Goliath. Where is the king? He's not out on the battlefield. They're fighting his battles for him. He's not fighting their battles on their behalf. The monarchy, which should have been a great blessing to Israel, becomes for them a curse. Indeed, if you look at the rest of Israel's history, uh, after this uh, demand for a king, most of Israel's kings turn out to be oppressors. All of the judgments Samuel pronounced here do indeed come true. And again, Samuel's ministry was proof that if they obeyed God's word, he would protect them, he would provide for them. A society ordered by God's word will be a society full of justice and peace, but they reject that. It's just so interesting. At the end of chapter 7, they have justice and peace. They've got victory over their enemies. They've got peace and prosperity in the land. But in their prosperity, they forgot God. Even though Samuel had set up a memorial stone called Ebenezer, a stone of help, they forgot God and they rejected God as their king, as their warrior, as their judge. They chose to put their faith in man, that is, in the state rather than trusting God. An idolatrous people will get an idolatrous government. And that's what happens here. And idolatry is the right word to use because that is how God describes their actions. If you look at verses 7 and 8, God says to Samuel, they have rejected me from being king over them. And God says, from the time I brought them out of Egypt to this day, they have continually forsaken me and served other gods. And now they're doing it again, only this time again. It's not the gods of the, it's not the Baals and the Ashtaroths. It is the God of the state. That's a huge part of what's happening in this chapter. But there is much, much more going on in this chapter. There's certainly a lesson here about political 
realism, there is a warning about how the state has potential to become an idol, all of that's there. But there are some other very practical lessons in this chapter for our personal day-to-day -day lives, you could say. If we really understand what's going on, we will see that actually, even in our day-to-day -day lives, not just politically, but in your day-to-day -day life, you face the same temptation that Israel succumbed to here. Remember last week, I pointed out that it was not wrong for Israel to have a king per se. God had promised Israel a king. God had promised to give Israel a king. A righteous king would indeed be glorious. A righteous monarchy is indeed the most glorious form of government there is. It was not wrong for Israel to desire a human representative of God's kingship over them. The problem here is not having a king. It's not with the form of government per se. The problem really is twofold. First, their motive. They want a king like the other nations, and I touched on that last week. We talked about the problem of worldliness and how really it affects God's people, it afflicts God's people in every generation. Israel wants to fit in with the nations instead of being distinct from the nations and a model for the nations. Israel wants to fit in with the other nations and copy the other nations. And how often does the church do the same thing in our day? The church wants to fit in. The church wants to be like the world. We blur the lines between the church and the world. Worldliness is a perennial temptation for the people of God. That's one problem. But the other problem with their request for a king is the timing. They demand kingly glory on their own terms rather than waiting for God to bestow it. Timing is crucial here, and understanding the timing of this is absolutely crucial. But we will miss this aspect of it if we do not pay attention to the details and we don't understand how this part of 1 Samuel fits in with the rest of Scripture. Again, think about the situation that Israel's in here. God has given them peace in the promised land under Samuel. Everything is as it should be at the end of chapter 7. The end of chapter 7 is one of the great high points in Israel's history. Israel has peace and Israel has prosperity. Israel's been granted victory over her enemies and Israel is enjoying all the blessings of dwelling in the promised land. It's like Israel is dwelling in a new garden of Eden. But what happens every time God sets Israel up in Eden-like conditions? What happens? They fall, just like Adam did in Eden. See, Israel's request for a king is really a replay of Adam's fall in Genesis chapter 3. Now, not exactly in every respect, of course, but there is a parallel, there is an analogy. The heart of the sin that Israel commits here is identical to the heart of the sin that Adam committed in the garden. So let's backtrack to Genesis 3 for just a minute. Think about Adam's fall in Genesis chapter 3. What did he do? God had set Adam up in a garden with two sacramental trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life he had access to, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he was forbidden to eat of that tree. Now, here's the thing. In Genesis chapter 2, God actually said, at first he said, you may eat of every tree of the garden. And I think that includes the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then God puts what has to be understood as a temporary prohibition on this one tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is off limits for a time. 
This tree was good, just like all the other trees. God says it was good. And God was going to give it to them as well, but not yet. But not yet. They would have to wait patiently for permission to eat of this tree. It was a test. What then did the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represent? What was so special about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, that phrase, knowing good and evil, or the word knowing, could also be translated as determining good and evil, or judging good and evil, or discerning good and evil. That same phrase, knowing good and evil, appears several times in Scripture, and the context is always the same. Knowing or judging good and evil is a kingly task. It's what kings do. So, for example, later on when Solomon is enthroned as king, he prays for kingly wisdom to rule effectively. He's entered into royal office, and so he prays for royal wisdom. And in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9, he prays, Lord, give your servant understanding to govern your people that I may know good and evil. That is, that I may discern or judge between good and evil. Solomon is king. He's asked for wisdom because he needs wisdom to rule. And he knows being a king means judging good and evil. You could really say that Solomon's enthronement is equivalent to partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's really what it means to be enthroned. He will now judge between good and evil. He will determine or discern between good and evil. Similar language to this about knowing or determining good and evil is used in relationship to kingly office in the work, and the work of the king in other texts like 2 Samuel 14 and Isaiah 7 and several other places we could go. To be a king is to discern or judge between good and evil. To be a king is to know or judge or discern good and evil. To be a king is to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in that sense. It takes kingly wisdom to make these judgments. In fact, you see, going back to Solomon, you see this in in the case of Solomon right away. Solomon offers this prayer, Lord, give me knowledge of good and evil. And then in that same chapter, he's got to make a royal judgment. The very first thing that happens after his enthronement and his prayer for royal wisdom is two mothers come before him with one child, and they are arguing over whose child this is because it turns out that one of the mothers has rolled over and killed her baby in her sleep. And so here's Solomon, two mothers, one baby. How is he going to make this judgment? Solomon in his wisdom, in his ability to discern good and evil, makes a royal judgment that exposes which woman is lying and which woman is the true mother. Go read 1 Kings chapter 3 and you'll see this. That is what royal wisdom looks like. That's what it means to discern between good and evil. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden is the kingly tree. You could say the tree of life is the priestly tree. I'm not going to develop that here. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the kingly tree. Partaking of that tree means exaltation to royal office and glory. When Adam was created, he was created as a priest ministering in the sanctuary. But he was not yet a king. He was a prince, I suppose, a king in training. 
And you could say in that sense he had dominion over the earth and was to rule the earth and all of that, but he needed to mature into kingly glory. He did not yet have kingly office. Kingly office was not yet his. And the only way he could enter into kingly office would be by patient waiting and obedience. The only way he could mature into this kingly stature God was calling him to would be by trusting God, waiting on God, obeying God, and growing in wisdom. Then, and only then, he would be fit for kingship. Now, had Adam done that, had Adam waited patiently and trusted God and obeyed God and grown in wisdom, I have no doubt at some point God would have said to him, you now have my permission to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You are ready for a promotion. You have humbled yourself before me, and so now you are ready to be exalted. You are ready for your exaltation to royal glory. You are ready for kingly rule. And so, Adam, go partake of the tree. Of course, we know Adam did not do that. Adam seized kingly glory ahead of time, before God granted him permission and before he was ready. Think of it this way. Uh, Nine-year-olds are not ready for the privilege and glory of driving a car. And if a nine-year-old seizes the car keys prematurely, and takes the family car out for a drive, what's going to happen? He is surely going to get into a wreck. Driving a car is good, but you have to wait until you are ready. You have to wait until you have matured and proven yourself, until you have the right kind of wisdom. Then you will be handed the keys to the car. You don't seize the car keys ahead of time. You wait and receive the car keys when the time is right, when you've matured appropriately. See, what does Adam do in Genesis chapter 3? He seizes the car keys before God gave him a driver's license. He seizes this kingly glory before God says he's ready for it. He seizes this kingly glory before God gives him permission. He exalts himself instead of waiting for God to exalt him. Now, Israel does the exact same thing in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Instead of waiting for God to bestow kingly glory on the nation when the time is right, they demand this kingly glory now. They seize it. They grasp for it. They demand this kingly glory. They say, we want kingly glory, and we want it now. And in so doing, they break their covenant with God, they commit idolatry, and they exalt themselves. Why would the elders of Israel demand a king? Think about this from the elders' perspective for just a moment. Why would they demand a king? They've already got some kind of rule in Israel. They're the elders of the tribes. Well, clearly they weren't content with eldership. They thought, oh, surely we'll have more power and glory and a monarchy. We will go from being mere elders to being members of a royal court. They figured they'd have even more power over the people, more control, more honor, more status. In a monarchy, for them, this was a way of seizing kingly glory. Now, of course, it's going to backfire, as Samuel tells them it will. It's going to backfire. And so what should have been a blessing becomes a curse, but it, it devolves from curse into blessing because they seize it prematurely. They think they're going to get more power. Instead, they get enslaved. And this is because sin is always deceptive. 
They exalt themselves, and so they are actually demoted and brought low. Self-exaltation, grabbing glory for yourself, always backfires. It always actually results in a loss of glory, not a gain of glory. The real way to kingly glory in our lives is to wait patiently and to wait obediently for God to bestow it. The real way to kingly glory is to seek maturation through obedience and then receive it as a gift from God when the time is right. See, these elders in Israel who demanded a king knew that God had promised kingly glory to Israel, but they got tired of waiting for it. And because they demanded a king at the wrong time, they got the wrong kind of king and the wrong kind of kingdom. They got a king like the nations who would enslave them rather than serve them. They got a kingdom of this world rather than a heavenly kingdom. And what's more, they knew They knew that the time was not right for a king. They had to know this because they knew their scriptures. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 49, as Jacob is giving blessings to his 12 sons, the the 12 tribes of Israel, back in Genesis 49, God said that the royal scepter would belong to the tribe of Judah. The royal scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah. That, that, That right there was a promise. Yes, God will give them a king, and the king will come from the tribe of Judah. They need a man from Judah to rule over them. The lion of the tribe of Judah, if you will. The problem is that if you go back a few chapters before that to Genesis 38, you find Judah sinning sexually with Tamar. I won't go into all the details of the sordid story there in Genesis 38. It's kind of a complicated story. But Judah engages in sexual immorality with Tamar. And so the children born of their union are illegitimate. Now, according to the law in Deuteronomy chapter 23... One born illegitimately of a forbidden union was not allowed to be an officer in Israel for ten generations. For ten generations, the descendants of Judah would be excluded from office in the nation. So they knew, the elders knew, that from the birth of Judah's son Perez, conceived in this illegitimate union, it would be ten generations before they would have a man eligible to be king. They knew that. By the time we get to 1 Samuel 8, we are in the ninth generation down from that forbidden union. And we know that because the book of Ruth, which is set during the era of the judges, the book of Ruth ends with a genealogy. And that genealogy runs from Judah's illegitimate son, Perez, down to David. You can go to the end of Ruth 4 and you can count it up. From Perez down to David, it is ten generations David is ten generations down from Perez. David's generation is the first eligible generation in Judah's line to be king. But when the people demand a king in 1 Samuel 8, David has not yet been born. And even if other members of his generation, of his line, have been born, they wouldn't be old enough yet to be king. David's not going to be born. He's not going to be born for another ten years or so. So in demanding a king now, In saying we want what we want and we want it now, they have jumped the gun. They have seized kingly glory prematurely. It's not quite time. If only they could have patiently waited and trusted God just a little bit longer. 
God would have given them the right kind of king in the right way. Now understand, this is not just an obscure point based on the details of biblical chronology. This is actually a major theme in the scriptures. The temptation to seize what is good, but what is not yet ours, instead of patiently waiting for God to give it to us on his own terms, is a constant, that is a constant temptation in the life of God's people. To seize what is good but is not yet ours, rather than waiting for God to bestow these things, to seize them for ourselves. Now, we all face this, this, this temptation. Like Israel, we want what we want and we want it now. Think of some examples of this. Premarital sex falls into this category. Sex is God's good gift, but it's God's good gift in the context of marriage. Premarital sex, what the Bible calls fornication, is seizing something good before God grants permission. See, when a man and a woman marry, they become king and queen of their domain. And as king and queen, that comes with many responsibilities. It also comes with many privileges. It includes the privilege of becoming one flesh. Becoming one flesh with each other. But to seize one fleshness before entering into the covenant of marriage is to take a glory God has not yet given you. It's to seize what is not yours yet. It's the same sin. And of course, seizing this this, this sin prematurely doesn't make you a king or a queen. It just enslaves you to your lusts. It just creates a kind of slavery. Or consider this as another example. Some forms of what we will call consumer debt fall into this category. Some forms of consumer debt are foolish ways of seizing glory prematurely. I've seen this happen again and again. You have young people who leave home to start out on their own and you know, they, they've just left home, and they do not want any drop in their standard of living. You know, the, the standard of living they enjoyed under mom and dad's roof, they just want to continue on with that. Now, they can't afford that standard of living, and they ignore the fact that mom and dad didn't always live that way. It took mom and dad years of working hard and saving and sacrifice to attain that standard of living. But this young person wants it, and he wants it now. But see, the thing is, buying things you can't afford does not really give you kingly glory. It might look like you have all the trappings of kingly glory, but it doesn't actually give you kingly glory. It just enslaves you to the bankers and the credit card companies. It's just a form of slavery. Thankfully, there is a better way. There is a better way to live. It is the way of King Jesus. Jesus paved the way to true kingly glory. He won kingly glory for himself, and now he shares that kingly glory with all who trust him, all those who follow in his way, all who become his disciples and follow after him. But it's interesting, along the way to that kingly glory, Jesus faced the same temptation to seize that kingly glory prematurely. Satan tempted Jesus just like he tempted Adam. Satan tempted Jesus to take a shortcut to the throne, to seize kingly glory ahead of time, to seize hold of the kingly glory without having to suffer. Satan said to Jesus in the wilderness, he said, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world and all their glory. Satan says to Jesus, you have to go to the cross. 
You won't have to suffer and die. All you have to do is fall down and worship me and all this kingly glory will be yours. But unlike the first Adam, the last Adam passed the test. He refused Satan's temptation. He did not seize kingly glory ahead of time. He chose to wait for his father to bestow it. Jesus wanted kingly glory, and there's nothing wrong with having ambition for kingly glory. That's good. But Jesus wanted kingly glory in his Father's way and in his Father's timing. And this so impressed the earliest Christians that they actually wrote a a song about it. They composed a hymn to celebrate this, a hymn that's become known as the Carmen Christi, the Christ song. We read it this morning. It's found in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And this hymn describes how the incarnate Son lived and acted. Verses 6 and 7 of the hymn tell us that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be seized or grasped. He did not seize or grasp after equality with God. He didn't seize glory for himself like Adam and Israel. He waited to be given glory. The hymn goes on, we find he did not fill himself the way Adam filled himself with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No, the hymn says he emptied himself. Literally, he poured himself out. He didn't take what was not his to fill himself. Instead, he gave what was his for the sake of others. He poured himself out. He did not make himself king. The hymn says in verse 7, he made himself a servant. He did not exalt himself. The hymn goes on to say in verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the worst and lowliest and most painful and most cursed form of death. But then the hymn goes on. It doesn't end there. It goes on. Therefore, the hymn says, God highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name. Because Jesus served in humility and because he waited patiently, he has now been enthroned in kingly glory. And the hymn goes on to say, every knee, every nation, every power, every angel, every demon will bow before him and confess that Jesus is Lord. They will confess Jesus is king to the glory of God the Father. Hallelujah. How did Jesus become king of kings? How did he enter into this kingly glory? He was patient. He was obedient. He was faithful. He was humble. He served rather than seized. He humbled himself rather than exalting himself. This is the way of Jesus. He did all of that for us to save us from our idols, to save us from our sin, to bring us forgiveness, to bring us salvation, to to rescue us from death and hell. He did all of this to establish his kingdom, a kingdom not like the kingdoms of the nations, a kingdom that is not of this world. See, it's so important to understand this. Jesus did not refuse Satan's temptation because he was uninterested in the kingdoms of this world. He did want the kingdoms of this world. He still wants the kingdoms of this world. But he wanted them in the right way. He wanted to take possession of them in the right time. 
That is, in his father's way and his father's timing. And of course, in doing all of this, Jesus not only does these things for us on our behalf, he also does these things to give us a pattern so that we, when we trust in him and we are united to him, this becomes our pattern of life as well. We don't seize, we serve. We don't exalt ourselves, we humble ourselves and wait on God to exalt us. The way to glory for us is the way of Christ-like humility and service. It is the way of sacrifice and self-giving love. Do not seize glory for yourself. Do not grasp after it. Instead, receive glory from the Father. Again, in his timing and his way. Do not exalt yourself. Humble yourself in loving service to others. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way to kingly glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.